This is a People First Radio podcast. Ben Perrin is putting Canada's justice system on trial. The UBC law professor has heard the stories of dozens of people who have been incarcerated, who have been victims of crime, or both. Those stories form the basis of Perrin's book, Indictment, the Criminal Justice System on Trial. It paints a picture of a system that perpetuates and exacerbates traumas and harms while failing to deliver justice for victims or provide safety for communities. Perrin also draws on programs from around the world to present a vision for how he thinks things could be done differently. I'm uh, Ben Perrin. I'm a law professor at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, and I'm the author of a book called Indictment, The Criminal Justice System on Trial. And reading through Indictment, you come away with the impression that the criminal justice system is not really doing much good for anyone directly involved, whether that's a person charged with a crime, whether that's a victim, or even some of the correctional staff who work within it. What would be the best place to start to try and understand why that is, do you think? Well, I think the end of the the conversation is where I would start, really, is that the system is perfectly designed to get the results that it's getting. It's uh, it's not a broken system. It's actually working really, really well to get some really, really bad results. And it's it's not working for anyone. Um, you mentioned victims of crime. We can start there. I mean, the survivors that I spoke to talked about feeling left behind by the system, re-traumatized by the system, harmed by the, the, the professionals whose job it was to support them. And uh, we see it in the stats as well, right? Um, one of the things that comes through, I hope, in, in the book is is a really powerful stories, really, of lived experience. Every chapter leads with with a really in-depth story uh, because, you know, honestly, we've all heard the stats at this point, right? We know that victims of crime have given up on the system. We know that there's a disproportionate number of Indigenous and Black people incarcerated. We know that we have record-breaking uh, unregulated drug deaths and rising crime rates. But behind those those numbers are, are real people. And by talking to them and listening to them, we begin to understand how and why the criminal justice system is is failing so poorly. You know, at its core, the criminal justice system is based around tools of coercion and punishment. That's what police and prisons are all about, is either the threatened or actual use of force against people in the name of, of law and order, in the name of justice. The problem is that the complex challenges facing our society, things like homelessness, uh, substance use, uh, racism, mental health issues, none of these are, are, are amenable to being fixed by, you know, police with sidearms and locking people in cages. They, they aren't. In fact, these criminal justice solutions actually end up making the problem even worse. Can you explain that last bit, some of the ways that maybe the solutions make the problem worse? Yeah. So let's look at something like um, incarcerating someone, right? Someone, uh, once they're incarcerated, if they had you know housing, um, they, they will likely lose it. If they had a mental health team or individuals supporting them, they often will lose that or they're disqualified from participating now that they've been charged or even if they're on bail, they'll still be disallowed. They're disconnected from their family and their friends. They may lose a job. If they get a conviction, they now have a criminal record, which makes it even harder for them to get work or to travel internationally or anything like that at all. And what happens inside the prison and jail environment is that those individuals get 
re-traumatized. These are environments that I had one person who's incarcerated describe to me. He said, 90% of my time is, is pure boredom and the other 10% is pure terror. And you never know which of those it's going to be. And so the kind of accounts that we heard of violence rampant against people inside um, prisons is, is one of the main reasons why people come out much worse than when they enter. And so we see, in fact, prison is associated with the higher levels of reoffending. People leave worse off than when they entered. And so prison actually contributes to cycles of violence and harm in our society rather than intervening and stopping them. And in writing this book, you interviewed dozens and dozens of people, more than 30 on both the side of professors, people who have worked within the system. And then, as we've alluded to so far, you interviewed people with experience in the system, people who have spent time incarcerated, people who have been victims of crime. Listening to their stories, what were some of the things that most stuck with you? I think it's, it's, the, it's the persistent injustices that I heard time and time again. And um, I'll, I'll just start with the first person who responded to our, our research poster. I mean, we asked a very straightforward question. It was, what was your experience like with the criminal justice system? The first person who responded, everyone's got a pseudonym to protect their, their privacy. So in the book, I call her Courtney. And she's a 39-year-old Indigenous woman. She talked to me about how from the ages of 12 until age 39, she spent 25 years you do the math. That's most of that time, 25 years in and out, in and out of prison. And it's it, it was shocking for me to hear a couple of things beyond just the fact that, you know, the, the millions and millions of dollars that were spent incarcerating her, and yet none of it helped her. It, it, it made things much worse. Uh, someone who's 12 years old, uh, that's, that's grade seven. That's a very young age to think about locking someone up. She was locked up in a, in a co-ed institution. When she talked about things that were good about it, she talked about getting three meals a day. That's what stood out as a positive experience for her. So talk about the poverty, right? As things uh, escalated for her being incarcerated, many of the times she ends up back in like mo most folks we spoke to, it wasn't for committing new offenses necessarily. There certainly were some of those for her, but it was for breaching conditions, like breaching a curfew, being home a bit late for your curfew, failing in uh, a drug test when you or someone with a substance use disorder, right? Failing a drug test and then get back inside. And I'd say the most heartbreaking was to hear about the use of force against people in prisons and when they turned to things like self-harm, in her case, a suicide attempt, literally after they had stitched her up, they just put her back in a solitary confinement type cell. And that it, it's, it's just so cruel and so exactly the opposite of what someone needs in terms of support after they've tried to take their own life. And yet that's what our prisons are doing. And no wonder, no wonder that people who are incarcerated have vastly shorter lifespans, way higher rates of suicide, and way higher rates of uh, deaths from unregulated drugs. So I think that was the real, the humanity, um, the real sense of cruelty and loss that I heard from folks who were incarcerated. And, and the fact that, you know, the world's not so black and white. It's not just the good guys and the bad guys. Everyone I spoke to and the research more, more generally bears out that first they were in fact victims of crime well before they became offenders. Many of them victimized as, as very young children and we failed to protect them and, and give them the help they needed then. You're listening to People First Radio. My guest is Ben Perrin. He's a law professor at the University of British Columbia. Over the last few years, he's interviewed several dozen people with experiences in Canada's justice system, including victims of crime and people who have been incarcerated. He's put their stories together in a new book, Indictment, 
the criminal justice system on trial. Off the top of our conversation, you mentioned that maybe everyone knows or has a general idea of the statistics when it comes to overrepresentation of Indigenous people in Canada's prison system. One thing that really stuck with me was how that problem is getting worse, how, uh, according to the latest statistics, Indigenous people represent 32% of people in federal Canadian prisons, despite only being 5% of the population. But 20 years ago, that was only... 17%. Were you able to learn anything in the course of your research about why specifically the situation seems to be growing worse? Yeah. So this gets back to, to the, the sort of conclusion we reached that the system is perfectly designed to get the results it's getting. So that's that's what a positive feed, feedback loop does. Once you, you start to accrue a certain result, if you keep doing more of the same, you're going to get more of the same result. And so one of the reasons we see for the disproportionate rates of Indigenous incarceration is systemic racism. And, and, and an example of that is that an Indigenous person who's incarcerated, the research shows, is more likely to end up back in prison for breaching conditions of release. Things like a breached curfew, things like a failed uh, substance use test that they're told not to use, even though they may have a lifelong addiction to it. And when I say lifelong, that's not an exaggeration. The people I spoke to, the youngest age someone started drinking alcohol and was an alcoholic by their own admission was age five. Okay. So they ended, they're more likely to end up back in prison for breaching those conditions than committing a new offense. Right. Whereas someone who's not indigenous is more likely to back back in prison for, for, for committing a completely new crime. So that's the kind of, kind of thing that really stands out for me. And what's really jarring is that, you know, when we look at it and we look at the trauma experienced by many indigenous people end up involved in the justice system, you know, we as a society cause the trauma right? And then we provide the purported solution, things like alcohol and synthetic drugs like fentanyl. And then we criminalize people for using those things, right? It's a, it's a triple whammy. And, and yet there are other ways to deal with these harms and, and indigenous uh, nations have, have been, you know, dealing with harm in their, in their communities for, for millennia. And they are still doing that today, but the indigenous justice initiatives that we see in Canada continue to be thwarted. Right. And so even when we have incredible outcomes from them, so like indigenous led peacekeeping has uh, shown to have a 25% reduction in violent crime in indigenous communities. That's an incredible crime reduction statistic. And yet chronically underfunded uh, indigenous nations have had to take the federal government to court multiple times just to get their funding renewed, um, having to share their police equipment when they go off shift with another officer, that kind of thing. We see the same thing with indigenous led healing lodges. We see that they have much lower rates of reoffending, but in fact, end up again, chronically underfunded. And so that's a story that we saw again and again throughout our research was that programs that exist on a small scale, they're doing a much better job of getting better outcomes are, are stymied and stifled by the system. On that front as well, when it comes to, you know, the stats that we already know, but maybe are shocking every time you hear them. A study from Public Safety Canada found that 14 years after release, about half of prisoners aren't making any income. And then of the other half that are, the median is $14,000 a year, well below the poverty line. What should we make of that? I think it just speaks to how much a prison sentence of any duration is, is a really a life sentence. It's like a life sentence to poverty. It's what it is. That's not serving those folks, right? It's not giving you really an much of an option to to, to, to have a productive life, to earn an income for yourself and your family, right? Many folks have got families too. We're talking about they're not just on their own. 
And I think it also speaks to the to the failure of uh, of incarceration as a tool of rehabilitation. It does not rehabilitate uh, people by and large, and we end up all paying the price for that, right? So I I think when you start to see those those statistics and you understand the reasons why, it begins to get really clear. So we again we start locking people up really young. When we see those indigenous incarceration rates of adults, it starts as it starts as minors. In fact, the rates of indigenous incarceration for youth are even higher, and so. It's it's not an exaggeration when indigenous people that I spoke to have said that incarceration is like the new residential schools. We see people, a very clear pipeline from the child welfare system, which is, again, disproportionately indigenous kids, into the youth juvenile justice system, into the adult corrections system. And uh, and again, 14 years after release, the median income being zero dollars. So there are better ways to have a safer society, but we're continuing to follow what really is not much different from a sort of Victorian England idea of locking people up, hoping that they will somehow have, through quiet contemplation, you know, change their ways. And that's that's not the experience that people have by and large in, in prison. And reading through some of the the anecdotes from people's stories, it goes beyond just, say, locking people up, right? For example, I'm thinking of an anecdote where someone was self-harming and the response was pepper spray. Yeah, yeah. When it comes to to ways that the system seems to be going beyond what it should, how do you how do you explain those? It's I think it just is a factor really of the massive power imbalance that we see in prison between corrections officers and the people who are inside being incarcerated and and there is very little if any oversight at all. There is a federal corrections investigator and does an outstanding job of with the limited resources that his office has of bringing to light stories like the one you just mentioned that's from his report. But um, I heard again and again from people who are incarcerated that there, there really is no redress that they have for the most part. Times they have complained, they end up experiencing reprisals. They're, they're put on lockdown and other inmates are told, Hey, this person made a complaint, and then there's, you know, they're 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 assaulted or whatever else happens to them to make them shut up. Basically, their real options are things like riots and food and hunger strikes. And unfortunately, in some parts of the country, like in uh, in Saskatchewan, there have been you know long term hunger strikes by people incarcerated protesting against you know pretty horrific conditions. So, I mean, I think there's a couple of reasons to care why why we should care about what happens to people when they're incarcerated. First of all, I think it's basic humanity basic human rights issues, if that's not enough to get you concerned, I think there's a very pragmatic argument, which is, uh, you know, what kind of a neighbor do you want to have, right? The vast majority of people incarcerated are going to get out and will be released in our communities. I would much rather have someone who, you know, if they are separated for a time for, for public safety reasons, have been able to get the mental health care and support, had access to the substance use recovery programs that they, they're ready to take on when they're ready to take them, who have had vocational and job training, who've had a much more humane and normal environment. So when they come out, they're not, you know, they haven't been spending the last several years sharpening their shank at night, as someone told me, but instead they're actually addressing the underlying root causes. And then when they come out into the community, they're not literally dropped in prison shoes, you know, by a taxi cab with no idea and nowhere to live. So countries that have taken a much more humane approach, similar to what I just described, countries like Norway have done that. And they've moved away from a system that's very similar to our punitive system and into a more humane direction. And they've seen reoffending rates drop hugely from about 60 to 70%, similar to Canada, down to just 20%. So again, there's very good reasons for why we should do things quite differently. And that's why in this book indictment, I call this a new transformative justice vision. I think our goal should not be to punish people for the sake of punishing them or vengeance. It should be to transform 
the trauma that we see in our society, both for the survivors who are also treated not very well by the system at all, and for those who have harmed them. This is People First Radio. I'm Joe Pugh, and I'm speaking with UBC law professor Ben Perrin. We're discussing Canada's criminal justice system, which is the subject of Perrin's new book, Indictment. All author royalties from the book are being donated to a pair of organizations. Saskatchewan-based Straight Up, which helps people leaving gangs and criminal street lifestyles, and Ottawa's Collaborative Justice Program, which engages victims, offenders, and their communities in restorative justice processes that focus on understanding, reparation, and healing. You wrote in the book that basically you don't think that fixing the criminal justice system is just a matter of of tweaks and changes, but you think that it's something so substantive that we have to basically burn it down. The people who work in corrections probably need to find new careers and we need to to start fresh. Can you tell me what what a better justice system would look like or how it's even possible we could get there? Yeah, I mean, I think some of the ideas in the book, you, you could go ahead and implement and they would do some good. They would. Like if you sort of said, hey, we're only going to do a few things Okay, yeah, that would help some people for sure. There's seven major pillars of a, a new transformative justice vision. But the question I was really answering in the, uh, answering in the book is the one that Justice Canada posed a few years ago. Uh, they asked if you could design a new system from scratch, what would it look like? I think it's a good question. I think it's a good theoretical question. I think it's a good practical question. Where it would begin is you'd say, we want to, what's our goal? I would suggest our goal should be to reduce harm in our society, to reduce the violence in our society, the suffering and pain in our society. That's our goal, if that's the goal of a, a new justice system. How do we get there? Well, first of all, I'd, I'd want to talk about how do we do that on a long-term and sustained basis? And then we can talk about sort of the the, the problems of today. The, the person who's doing a violent stranger attack, as they're called, like today in Vancouver, which just happened again. But before we get to there, I you know, want to say, where does it all begin? And for many people, it starts in childhood. And so the first part of a new approach would be to address uh, early childhood uh, trauma. And there are incredible evidence-based programs that can do that. One of the reasons why we need to start there is that someone who experiences childhood trauma is 50% more likely to harm others later in life. That's an incredibly high risk level, but they're also more likely to become a victim again later. You know, someone who is abused as a child is eight times more likely to be sexually um, assaulted as an adult. And so how do you do that? Well, again, there's lots of great programs. One I profile in, in indictment is called the Nurse Family Partnership. It pairs up public health nurses or in some uh, other places they do it with like peers or maybe an elder or someone in the community who comes in while a young family is still waiting and expecting their first child. And they begin to meet with and support them and bring the community supports around them. They'll talk to them and educate them around, you know, the impact of substance use during pregnancy. They'll talk to them about available resources in the community. Once the kid's born, you know, supporting them with, with feeding, making sure they've got enough, you know, healthy food in the house, teaching them about how do you discipline your kid. You know, it's not the way maybe you were disciplined. And if you're hit, you know, or abused, there's healthier ways to teach your kids things. What they did then is that program only goes until the child turns two years old. So it's a very early intervention. The earlier, the better is what the research shows. They then went back when those kids were four, were 15 years old. And what they found, remember, it's the program ends at age two. So between two and 15, the program's done. What they found is those children experienced 79% less childhood abuse. They were spared that kind of victimization. 
in comparison with other peer families that did not benefit from the program. And they found those kids uh, by age 15 had 81% less criminal convictions. So, you know, if we want to be serious about addressing harm, we need to support young families with this early childhood development work, this prevention of trauma. And that is a starting point for how we begin to transform our society's health and well-being. I go on the book to talk about a whole bunch of other ideas. We need to have, for example, 24-7 non-police mobile crisis teams so that when you call the police, or sorry, when you call 911, you don't just have, you know, three options of police, fire, and ambulance, but a fourth option, which would be a crisis worker. And um, this isn't just, for example, if, you know, someone's walking on the block at two in the morning by your street and they're, they're swearing and yelling, you know, that's someone who's probably in a mental health crisis or on having a substance use uh, issue. You could have a mobile crisis team go to that. That's what we see in other communities. It works. But it could be a family member or a parent who has a neurological disability who is or has a psycho- psychotic episode, and you just don't feel equipped to, to deal with that. And you want to help, but you just can't. You need some outside help. Right now, nine times out of 10 or even more than that, you're going to get a police officer showing up. And we know that those encounters can end in death, and they have tragically in many situations. In fact, over two-thirds of people who die in encounters with police were experiencing a mental health or substance use issue at the time. And so that's where we see the need for other and different institutions to, again, better meet the needs in our communities today, which will make us all safer. So those are just two of of an example of out of uh, seven different things that I talk about in the book. You also talk a little bit about the idea of tough on crime policies or legislation. And I'm curious from your time as an advisor in the Harper government, and as well just with what you're seeing in the world today. Uh, for example, I read through an article in the Tai today talking about in Vancouver, Ken Sim campaigned on will hire 100 police officers and 100 nurses. Now they've hired 100 police officers and less than 10 nurses. When it yeah. comes to a policy level and these tough on crime policies and what you talk about in the book, what are your reflections on where some of that comes from? I, I think it, it comes from the perspective of politicians who are uh, looking for something to rile voters up that will get people to show up and vote out of fear. We, we know that tough on crime policies don't make us safer. If they did, the United States would be the safest country in the world right? Vastly more police officers per capita, much higher penalties, many more people incarcerated, highest rates among the highest rates in the world. And yet we see crime rates uh, substantially higher than in, in our country. So we know that that those more police, tougher prison sentences approaches just don't work in practice. They, they're not policy driven. So it's all about politics. So yeah, some cities, uh, voters buy it, like here in Vancouver, where I live. And, you know, unfortunately, then we get the bill. So I got a property tax bill and it's record-breaking property taxes to, among other things, pay for those 100 new police officers. And yet uh, we're not any safer, right? Police are reactive and uh, they're just simply not, unless you want to have a police state where there's a police officer on every corner, you know, they're not going to stop crime. They, re- re- they react to crime is, is basically what police continue to do. So, um, you know, not everyone's buying it though. So Toronto and Chicago are, are examples of two big cities, uh, very recently had municipal elections offered a choice to go with a tough on crime candidate in Toronto. They had a one candidate uh, campaigned on 500 new police officers. You know, it's just a one-upsmanship at this point. Uh, they also had a candidate who was a former police chief. And both of them lost to Olivia Chow running on a platform of much more of let's deal with the underlying root causes. We have a homelessness problem. The answer is not more police to displace homeless people, right? Let's start to deal with the housing. Toronto is an example of a city that does have now working several pilot projects for 
non-police crisis response teams as well. So, you know, uh, voters there and in Chicago rejected tough on crime candidates in favor of people who took a much more comprehensive view of the challenges that we're, we're facing. You're tuned in to People First Radio. My guest is law professor Ben Perrin. We're talking about the criminal justice system as explored in his new book, Indictment. I also did want to talk a little bit about specifically substance use as it relates to the criminal justice system. You wrote in the book that you quite literally could not design a worse place than jail for someone with an addiction to substances. Would you be able to just tell me about some of what you you learned or what came to light about the interplay between the justice system and substance use and addiction? Yeah. So in terms of incarceration, maybe start there. Yeah, you, you couldn't design a worse place. First of all, you've got trauma. Secondly, you've got isolation. Thirdly, you've got triggers all over the place for people to use, even if they want to stop using. And fourthly, you have the most unstable drug supply anywhere in the country, I would argue. Now, we don't have drug tests to, to show all this, but what we what we do have is we have, unfortunately, the statistics back that up, right? Uh, people who are who are in prison or recently released from prison are the single most vulnerable group for dying from unregulated drug deaths. So two-thirds of people in British Columbia, this is not widely known, but it's in the BC Coroner's Death Panel Review, two-thirds of people who died of unregulated drug deaths in BC had spent time in BC corrections or were, were under some form of BC correction supervision. In provinces like Alberta, half of people who had died of unregulated drug deaths had been imprisoned within the last two years. The reason why, among all the other points I mentioned, that it's so dangerous to incarcerate someone with a substance use disorder is that when you are imprisoned, yeah, there's still access to drugs, but it's definitely not the same as in the community. And so your tolerance will rapidly decline. And because this is a chronic uh, relapsing condition, we know that people are substantially more likely than to overdose because their tolerance has gone substantially down during that period. And so that's why we see prison essentially being like a death sentence for some people. And you're 50 times more likely to die from a drug overdose if you were incarcerated than if you hadn't been put in prison in the first place. What you discuss in the book, your kind of indictment, the titular indictment, it doesn't seem like it's maybe shocking news or a secret to anyone involved in the system. Uh, we have, for example, a report commissioned by the federal government saying that prisons should not be used with the expectation of reducing criminal behavior. So how do you, I guess, square the fact that it seems like people are well aware of some of the issues here with the fact that they don't necessarily seem to be being addressed? Yeah, I don't think people have been given an alternative. And that's one of the reasons I wrote the second part of the book, which is, you know, how could we do things differently? Um, I don't know anyone who thinks the justice system is is functioning well right now. Not, not one person. And uh, we really are being given two options right now. One is uh, is tinkering with the status quo. So things like, oh, we've got a problem of a disproportionate incarceration of Indigenous people. We should do some, you know, cultural competency training. We should have some more Indigenous judges and police, and you know, more uh, gladue reports, as they're called, which uh, is designed to address at sentencing the disproportionate number of Indigenous people. Uh, I support those things in principle, absolutely. The problem is they haven't moved the needle at all. Uh, as we've talked about, things have only gotten worse. And so the critique of this idea that tinkering is the way to go is that the system adapts just enough to keep enough uh, legitimacy to stay afloat, but without fundamentally changing the way it needs to. The other option on offer, besides this tinkering with the status quo, is, is a much 
more pendulum swinging the other way towards this tough on crime agenda, which we do see in resurgence with the federal conservatives, but also among the NDP governments to a certain extent here in British Columbia. We we see it at the municipal level from, from a whole number of different candidates. And we even see it in some ways with the, you know, all parties getting behind the recent bail reform bill, even though there's no evidence that that's going to make us any safer. And so I think part of the problem and why I'm I'm so interested in, you know, talking about these new approaches, some of which we've explored here, is I think people need to see there's a third way. We can follow evidence-based, compassionate policies that will make us all safer, and and quite frankly, at a fraction of the of the fiscal price and at much lower social costs too. You also talked about restorative justice processes in the book, and you also interviewed several people who had been victims of crimes and were kind of involved in those. I'm just wondering if there's any big takeaways you had on people impacted by crime. Yeah, I think you know everyone has it has a unique experience, and so I wouldn't wouldn't speak, obviously not speak for all victims, but I mean I was surprised. I think many people who have not had that experience of of being a, the survivor of a violent crime, I was surprised how many folks we interviewed. Their priority was not that their perpetrator, the perpetrator against them, be locked up and the key be thrown away. They weren't asking for harsher punishments. They they wanted to be protected, but they were they were principally saying that they felt like they were not given the information. They were treated as some outsider to the system. They weren't told what was happening or where and when. They were denied any real ability to participate in the process. And the outcomes that they got were not ones that they felt they need, they needed or wanted. There were a few folks in particular who were very critical of the idea that the state takes over their role, really usurps their role, and uses that to, to essentially... Uh, you know, act out in vengeance and punishing perpetrators and, and that sort of thing. That was that was their take. So, you know, as as if people uh, read the book or listen to our our podcast, they'll hear these folks share in their own words. You'll really see that this this book is really from start to finish is driven by the lived experiences that people have in and around the system. And these are not voices that are are typically at the table. We don't hear from them. They're the real experts. I mean, who knows more about the needs of of a survivors of crime than someone who's a survivor of crime, right? Who knows more about how prison affects people than someone who's spent most of their life behind bars? And so we need to to sort of shift the conversation to make sure that folks like that, who I spoke to and learned so much from, are are given a much greater voice in these uh, these conversations. Because excluding them is one of the main reasons why I think we see such dismal outcomes. We're just not talking to and we're not listening to the people who are most affected by these these challenges. Is there anything else you'd like to bring to the conversation today? Yeah, I would just encourage people, you know, there's some hope. The 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 new approaches for a more transformative justice system, they're not just neat ideas. Every single one of them, there are real live working uh, policies and programs somewhere in Canada or around the world that are actually doing these things. And and not all of them rely on government. You know, I mentioned earlier about the 24/7 non-police crisis response teams. Yeah, that should be backed by government, funded by government. But the fact is, in some communities, it, it, it started out as uh, non-governmental organizations doing it themselves. And then uh, the police saw, hey, this is actually helpful. We we don't want to show up when for a mental health wellness check. Uh, you know, most officers don't want to be the next person, I don't believe, on the front page of the CBC who've shot someone at two in the morning in a mental wellness check. They'd rather have someone to to go do that who's a trained crisis worker, who's got some you know, better approaches at uh, at supporting someone in crisis and, you know, is not going to escalate the situation. So 
that's just, I think, something that we can take on. And and even our decision around when do we choose to call police, uh, you know, there's, there's you know, tents occasionally in, in, in the schoolyard near our park. You know, we each have a choice as people who are in the neighborhood. Are we going to call the police on those folks or are we going to go check in on them and see if they need some support or just leave them alone? And um, so each of us has a role to play in in the justice system and in how we choose to to treat people in our community and how we respond. Ben Perrin is a law professor at the University of British Columbia and author of Indictment, Canada's Criminal Justice System on Trial. People First Radio, People First Media, and People First Stories are community media projects of Vancouver Island Mental Health Society and are produced in Nanaimo, British Columbia. The opinions expressed do not necessarily represent the views of Vancouver Island Mental Health Society or its broadcast, podcast, and social media partners. 